AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for September 9th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasure for cyber threats. Today I'm joined by Matt Kaiser, John Hogaboom, and uh, Jim Clausing online. And uh, let's go around the room here. Matt, we were at the uh, AT&T Security Conference last week. What did you think? What was your favorite part? My favorite part was probably Dan Kaminsky's keynote. I mean, the, um, the majority of the talks were a little bit high level for me, but mm -hmm. when Dan launched into a discussion of pseudo-random number generators, I, I knew I was in the right room. I really right. enjoyed that. He did a very good talk. I thought the technical depth and the, uh, the principles that he was talking about, he started about the, with the random number generators, but I think he went on back into some other concepts that were, uh, I think, really important, and I think a practical part of improving security of the internet, so thanks. John, what was your favorite? Uh, well, I, I would say probably my, I didn't get to a lot of the conferences because I was working the show, mm -hmm. parts of it, but um, just catching up with a lot of the people um, that we know, you know, customers and mm -hmm. other contacts and touching base with those people um, who I hadn't seen in a long time. So right, was it was good. a great opportunity for networking yeah, with networking. folks in the security industry and folks that we work with on a regular basis, not just internal to AT&T, but uh, our customer base and uh, others in the industry that vendors that we work with, for example. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Jim? What were what are your thoughts? I have to agree with both of those guys. Uh, Dan's keynote was great. Ed's keynote was great, mm -hmm. and uh, and meeting uh, customers and other folks in AT and T that I don't get to see a whole lot of mm -hmm. was really good. Yeah, Ed Amoroso's key keynote that was actually in the afternoon on the second day was about uh, security awareness and uh, I'd li actually like to bring Murray on on the show sometime hopefully we'll be get the opportunity to do that but uh, it you know the whole theme of uh, including our, our employees or others in the security awareness not just the awareness but as a part of the I guess the theme here is uh, you are the firewall so uh, it was a very good talk and uh, I think uh, worth taking a look at. Part of the reason I bring this up because uh, the security conference presentations will be online and uh, so you'll be able to go and uh, take a look at it and uh, I think it'll be a, actually a very good opportunity to uh, augment your, uh, the information you get here from ThreatTrack. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and, uh, oh, by the way, I'm Brian Rexrode. Uh, let's go. <laughs> let's go ahead and get down to business here. I think the first item is, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, pieces of malware that are targeting financial organizations. And John, I guess this isn't a new one, but it's certainly one that uh, has taken a little bit of a new slant. Well, right. Uh, so there's been an, a, a warning that was issued by the people from Salesforce.com. They do, uh, I think, it's customer uh, management type platform. Yep. And. Um, what they're warning about is there's been a particular campaign uh, pushing out the Dyer piece of malware, D-Y-R-E, also sometimes called Dyerza. Mm -hmm. And this is a banking trojan. We actually covered it back on, um, I think, episode 99. We talked about it uh, back in June. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a new piece of banking malware, very similar to Zeus, but it looks from the code base that it's different. You know, it's not based on Zeus. It's mm -hmm. its own, you know, origin and has a lot of similar functionality, captures login IDs and passwords and harvests those and then sends them up. So really there's not much new to this story other than 
kind of a warning that came out from salesforce.com, which is a pretty big site used by a lot of sales teams mm -hmm. uh, to you know, organize their uh, customer relationship type stuff. They've observed that there's a campaign targeting the harvesting of credentials for salesforce.com. Right. So that's really the, you know, the warning here. The important thing to know is salesforce.com is not the ones with the problem here. There's not a vulnerability with their right. website. Their accounts, credentials have not been uh, stolen from their website or anything like that. It's no big data dumps. What's happening here is Dyer's, uh, or Dyer, the way it, uh, it's just like any regular malware where it affects users' PCs. Mm -hmm. If the user is um, not cautious enough and gets their computer infected and then logs into the salesforce.com website, then it gets, you know, harvested and that's right. how they're doing the harvesting here. So I think the uh, sort of the basis behind this is uh, folks that are managing a Salesforce, they're paying the Salesforce, they may be using salesforce.com as a means to manage that. So if they can get credentials from folks that are accessing salesforce.com, they may be able to get some opportunity to, uh, to perform fraudulent financial transactions that is right. uh, transfer money to them one, one way or another. So uh, I understand it's, a, it's an email spamming campaign effectively? They didn't go into a lot of detail, however, I suspect that that's probably, um, we know from previous, you know, dyers of campaigns that mm -hmm. it was spam uh, that was sent out and then click on the link and it would take you to an exploit page that yeah. would drop it on your machine. So is there a possibility that the detection of this malware is lagging a little bit, partly because it's relatively new compared to the Zeus family? Well, we could say it's definitely lagging. We know mm -hmm. we've seen samples today that is not detected well by antivirus. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was five of the 54 or 45 on virus total mm -hmm. were the, uh, uh, only it picked it up. So that's a pretty low ratio, whatever, 10% or something like that. Right. Um, but, you know, they catch up. So it's always a game of catch up. There are some good signatures out there uh, that you can deploy in your IDSs mm -hmm. uh, to, to pick this up or IPSs if you have a prevention system mm -hmm. so that you can augment do some kind of layered defense there get your endpoint to pick up the malware when it can uh, as they roll new signatures out but there's also some network-based signatures that can look for the the network-based command and control callback and uh, let you know when that's happening which would be relatively less dependent on the actual malware binary itself because mm -hmm. they tend to have a very similar command and control even when they rebuild the binary All right. uh, each time Okay. One point there, though, is if you're picking it, the traffic up on your network, the machine is already compromised, yep. and if they get off of your network, if you block it on your network, if they, you know, if it's a laptop that they take home and plug in at home, they're still going to upload the credentials. So, you know, if you detect the network stuff, you still need to make sure you go clean up the infected machines. Yeah, absolutely. Right, absolutely. And uh, I guess, you know, we mentioned earlier about employee awareness. This would be certainly a case where uh, you want to make sure that folks, particularly they're using salesforce.com, that they're aware of this campaign and that they can, uh, you know, pay attention to any emails they're receiving and, uh, you know, do an extra special scrutinization. Right. Have an elevated awareness around right. weird emails that you receive and what you click. You should always be doing that, but maybe a little more so now, especially if you're a salesforce.com user. Right, absolutely. So uh, actually on a, uh, not directly related, but perhaps a little bit uh, relatively similar kind of note, uh, you know, we, there was a lot of press recently about some compromised user accounts on iCloud. And, uh, you know, we heard about the uh, new pictures of celebrities getting posted on the internet, that sort of thing. And it's grabbed a lot of attention. You know, typically we've seen cases in the past where natural disasters have inspired 
other types of phishing events. And this is one where Symantec is warning that uh, Apple IDs are being targeted by the Kaleos botnet on a phishing campaign. So they're basically uh, using that to try to gather uh, iCloud credentials. Now, it's not exactly clear what the motivation behind that is, perhaps to do uh, you know, uh, fraudulent purchases of sorts or, or perhaps uh, continue with other types of events like this. But uh, nevertheless, you want to take uh, some special care to pay attention to uh, anything that might suggest you're you know, you, you need to change your uh, iCloud user ID or, 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 or password or something along those lines because there are uh, some phishing campaigns that are uh, targeting that as well. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for that, John. That was uh, a, good, a good topic to bring it up. So let's go over to Jim here. And uh, Jim, I guess there's, uh, there's always an opportunity for some new uh, vulnerabilities to be patched, right? <laughs> Yep, it's Patch Tuesday again. Uh, Microsoft uh, released a, a number of patches today. The big one is a critical patch for Internet Explorer. The patch actually covers 37 different CVEs, 37 different vulnerabilities, 35 of which could be used for remote code execution. Mm-hmm. And the other two, one one of them was a, a denial of service, and I don't remember what the other one was. But um, this one is 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 pretty important. There are the exploit is known to be in the wild, so it affects Internet Explorer versions six through eleven. Wow. Hopefully, there aren't a whole lot of people still using six, but they are patching IE six mm. against this particular you know, these vulnerabilities. So. That's the biggie today. Um, the, a couple of weeks ago, we had talked about the patches that they had withdrawn from last month. And uh, I don't think we ever updated. I, we talked about the fact that they were going to be re-releasing them, and they did have re-released them, um, those patches that were causing the blue screen on right. uh, Windows 8.1. Those have been re-released, and they seem to have fixed the issue. Um, so that's that's the big patch news today. The other kind of minor patch news today is for the last year or two, Adobe has been patching on the same day as Microsoft. Mm-hmm. This month they are delaying their patches a week. Apparently they ran into some issues in regression testing, and so they have pulled them and they're not going to be releasing their patches until uh, next week. So uh, it, it, since you brought it up, are there any advantages or disadvantages to having Adobe patch on the same day or not? I think the reason that they went to that is because, you know, the Adobe, especially Reader and Acrobat, um, uh, but some of the other Adobe products are, are used so frequently by mm-hmm. Windows users that they figured it was easier to just have all of them get patched at the same time. That they've got their own automatic update mechanism that downloads mm-hmm. them, and uh, so I, I think that's why they they started doing that. Um, but this this month, the Adobe patches are coming a week later, um, just because of regression testing, and that's. You know, it's a good thing they're doing their heavy-duty regression testing, and since they had issues, they're holding them up rather than breaking 
the products for all right. the customers. So. Yeah, absolutely. If they're having troubles, it's, uh, it doesn't make sense to be pushing it out. I, I guess by the same token, I guess I'd like to kind of push the envelope a little bit. I'd like to see... Uh, you know, things come out as they are ready to be, uh, as they're ready to be deployed, as opposed to sort of this uh, periodic mode of uh, mode of operation. I think there's some opportunity to uh, still improve in terms of the way we do patching today. But um, you know, perhaps that's a that's a naive statement. <laughs> yeah, we could argue that one for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> we probably could. Okay, so let's uh, go and uh, back to John here, and I guess we're going to talk a little bit about uh, home routers and uh, some of the things that are targeting those devices. Yeah, so this is an interesting story. We've talked about um, you know various home routers, embedded devices getting compromised before. This is a little bit of a, a spin. It's not necessarily a new tactic. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we've ever covered this on the program before, uh, but basically the gist here is... Um, there's uh, a group of actors out there targeting uh, particular users, mostly in Brazil, some mm -hmm. in the United States, with a, uh, a phishing email. A phishing email basically kind of lures you. It's the scareware kind of thing where it says, hey, we've got naked photos of you, mm -hmm. something like that. And uh, if you want to see these or get rid of them, click on this link. You click on the link. And what it does is it actually downloads into your browser a web page. And mm -hmm. in, in that, now it's running in the context of your web browser, this JavaScript that's in there. And it tries to attack your um, home router with common passwords that it knows. And really is trying only maybe four or five different combinations. Right. But if you don't reset your home router, um, you know, a lot of people just take it out of the box, they set it down, mm -hmm. and they just use whatever it comes with, like admin, admin, or it's like a default password. Right. So what this does is it tries to um, uh, use those default credentials. So from within, on the inside, it's trying to manage your home router behind the scenes inside mm -hmm. your browser with this malicious JavaScript running in there. All right and um, change the DNS settings on your home router. So on, the, on this, that's not really an exploit against the, the machine or anything. It's just a JavaScript. It's no. telling it to execute things. But since it's executing from your browser, it's inside yeah, your it's local, inside network. local network. And I think we talked about this kind of scenario in the past with this uh, we particular have. campaign. There's a term for this. They call it drive-by DNS farming. Right. Uh, somebody came up with that term maybe a few years back, I want to say five, six years ago. And uh, what it does is, like you said, from within, on the inside, there, um, if the home router doesn't do a lot of good protections, uh, so basically what, if it's not real clever in how it handles um, password forms and whatnot, mm -hmm. such that it allows you to be able to script it with JavaScript, uh, which in this case, there's a bunch of routers, uh, mostly in Brazil, that are vulnerable to an easy way, as long as you know the password, to change the DNS settings by just supplying right. a lot of GET parameters on right. the URL right. string. Uh, once that's done, now your home router itself has wrong DNS settings pointing to a rogue DNS Pretty server. Right. Um, usually people's home devices, when they connect, they'll get DHCP. They're going to get the same DNS servers by DHCP that the router has, which are the bad ones. Mm -hmm. And now um, what they've set it up is, so most things that are queried against that rogue DNS server, it tells you the right place. But for Brazilian banking websites, a lot of the large ones, it is giving wrong information, sending you to a phishing page that looks very authentic. And, you know, you look at it, the correct URL is up there, mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, it's not the real website. And you right. put the login and ID and password in. That, and I, I presume you don't get the SSL certificate no, lock thing. As but far as I'm aware, they're not doing any kind of, I don't, they're not 
right. supplying rogue. But you wouldn't get any concerned. warnings either. It's not as if it's going to be in your face, you know, this certificate doesn't match because there probably isn't one at all. Right, right, right. right. So, um, I did ahead. read the article, I don't mean to interrupt, but um, didn't they say that if the, the five or so guesses that it tries fails, it actually fires up a prompt and asks you for your password? So go to the next slide. Yes, oh, it does. Okay. <laughs> um, so during no, the process of it trying these passwords, so this is, I kind of put this slide in here because if you are in Brazil, or maybe not, you might see this in other campaigns targeted towards the U.S. or other places. When it tries like admin, admin, if that's not your password, uh, it will pop, usually your home router will pop up a little authentication dialogue saying, well, that's not the right password. What, mm -hmm. you know, type it in. And you'll be like, wait, I'm not trying to log into my home router. Mm -hmm. I'm going to this website, you know. So if you see that pop up, that's a good indicator that something shady is probably going on in whatever content you received from this website right. or some frame within that website. Um, good precaution, as always, is don't use default passwords on your router. Even though you know it's only going to be managed from the inside of your network, mm -hmm. which is you would think is protected, it's not always the case here. So it's always good to change uh, the don't use the default password that ships with your home router. Right product. Well, this is about layers of protection. Your your local network is a layer of protection, but it's not last your last defense. And so you want to make sure that you're uh, you know, paying attention to what's going on with your own within your own network as well. Right, right. This is not a new problem uh, in Brazil. We've seen other interesting very similar campaigns over mm -hmm. the past 3-4 years. So back in the 2011 time frame, uh, there was another group doing DNS poisoning, uh, targeting Brazilian banking websites. Uh, but what they were doing in these cases is they actually, at first they were, thought they were doing DNS cache poisoning, which we've right. talked about um, as, you know, the whole Kaminsky thing with the, you know, mm -hmm. using certain strategies to poison the cache of a DNS server. What they actually found out is there was a certain ISP within Brazil that had a rogue actor in place that mm -hmm. was updating the DNS server settings at that ISP to provide false results. Yeah. And uh, he was subsequently arrested for that. Um, but obviously that same tactic is still kind of being used, not to say that the ISPs are compromised here, but to, to poison the DNS, so to speak, or to have rogue DNSs injected in your uh, in the process of your communications to, yeah. to get you to the wrong place. So it would be purely conjecture to say this is the same actor group as the between the two cases. Right. No, but not, if I understand correctly, it was actually just the ins insider actor that was actually, in, that there's a good chance that person was just being paid to do that. That's on very behalf possible of somebody too. else. So but I have no evidence to suggest that right. they're connected in any way. Just seemed interesting. Interest, interesting interesting that it was right? so <laughs> similar types of campaigns targeting banking. Right. Um, which this one was as well. So We also yeah. saw one called Banco's Proxy a few years back as well, right? Yes. And that one, I think, actually changed the settings on each individual host. All mm -hmm. the malware would do was fire off, change the settings, and go away. Right. right. And after that, you know, it was pretty detectable. Yeah, and we dealt with a DNS changer malware that was right along those same lines a while ago. So, uh, you know, DNS changer was a piece of malware that there was a lot of activity to uh, make the corrections for. There were uh, arrests in Estonia, but there are a lot of variations of that that exist that, of you know, ways to change where you're pointing for DNS and to be able to play some games with that. The, the one exception I've seen, the only time I've uh, ever seen a case where it was an insider actually manipulating an ISP's DNS yeah. was uh, that Brazil case. And uh, obviously, you know, integrity of our DNS is, uh, is uh, pretty important. It's not the last 
you know, the last measure for, from a security standpoint, really what you should be looking for is the uh, security certificates. Make sure that you're at a legitimate site. It's showing the, the proper domain associated with it. And, um, you know, signed by a, 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 a proper authority. But that's a piece of it. Absolutely. Okay, and let's go over to Matt here. And uh, Matt, there's some uh, more botnet spamming activity going on, right? Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. Uh, Encapsula put out a report about a, a, a botnet called Simult. Um, and what it appears that this botnet is doing, it's kind of interesting, is for uh, search engine optimization, or SEO, mm -hmm. which is sort of a, a nice way of saying bumping your ranks up in search engines right, through right. white, gray, or potentially black means. What it seems that Simult is doing is it is um, making requests to web servers, repeated mm -hmm. requests, and setting the refer field and the HTTP headers to the URL of the site they want to promote. Oh, see, now, yeah. what that'll do on some sites that are improperly configured is um, if the site has the um, access logs available and you know indexable and searchable, mm -hmm. um, it'll show up there as a link. Right. Now, some web crawlers will treat that as a page of the website and say, "Wow, you know this page links to you know." myspamsite.com 50 times, that's great. People must right. love this site. So it bumps up the rank in the search engine. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, basically what they're doing here is, is, is gaming the system. Right. Um, and some people might consider this white, some people might consider this gray. The problem here is that they're actually using um, what appears to be a comp either a, a Trojan or a modified version of, of uh, s some sort of sound software that I wasn't, mm. I wasn't clear as to whether or not this is a legitimate software that's been you know, repurposed, repackaged, or hijacked, mm -hmm. or if this was designed specifically as a vehicle of get, for getting the malware on the machine. Another gray area. Right? Yeah, another gray area. <laughs> um, but you know, it, seems, it seems like an, yet another interesting use of botnets to, to Create, but effectively, is financial gain. Right, and we've right. seen people stealing bank, you know, account information or money from a bank, or um, you know, comment spam. But this mm -hmm. one I thought was kind of unique in that it, it, it takes advantage of people misconfiguring their servers mm -hmm. in order to promote completely unrelated sites. Right. I, I don't know what the, the solution is here. Maybe it's just to educate. You know, website administrators that you know your logs should not be available to the general public because mm -hmm. they could be abused this way. There are other reasons not to share your logs to the general public, but I think this might be the most compelling one. Yeah, that's interesting. And so the question, I guess, becomes: is what what is the path for monetary gain in this in this case? Are they, you know, selling this as an advertising mechanism, or right, like are they the other way it. they could be using it is to to basically promote links associated with malware to get drive-by type uh, activity? So yeah, that, that's that'd be two a guess. Steps. And I think the first right. step in is just promoting the site itself, getting the rank right. up. Because naturally, if, if you are the top result for any search in a search engine, you're going to get more clicks through to your site. Right. That may translate into more business. You know, it's not a hard connection, but it, mm -hmm. it certainly sounds pretty good to some people who want to get their site promoted. Right. So these, the Samalt actually represents itself as a legitimate search engine optimization service. Um, but they do a few things that are not legitimate. Obviously, mm -hmm. we know that it's related to this botnet, but they also don't abide by the robots.txt file. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who aren't you know, familiar with how websites are set up, typically in the root of a website, you'll have a robots.txt file that tells any sort of web bot, these are the areas you're allowed to index, right. these are the areas you have to avoid. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you're running a legitimate bot, you will abide by that, and you won't go ahead and try to spider all those other sites. Apparently, Samal isn't doing this and is actually getting a lot of bad press from web administrators who are finding this out. Okay. Yeah. So that's, uh, again, uh, sort of another, you know, I guess a tick. 
<laughs> that, uh, that you want to pay attention to. Certainly, if you're going out to uh, purchase services, these are the kinds of things you want to look for, you know, reputational type activities for those services to make sure you're getting a good legitimate service in doing that. Probably on the uh, edge of what is really a security issue, but uh, that's, you know, that's how these things escalate into to, to bigger problems. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks, Matt. Very good one. Okay, so let's uh, jump back over here to Matt here and um, <laughs> help me out here, Matt. <laughs> what, what do we got? <laughs> so we've got an interesting uh, product idea, actually. So this came out of, um, I'm going to forget the guy's name, unfortunately, but someone created a script mm -hmm. to uh, prevent people using Google Glass from connecting to local Wi-Fi access points. Right. Now, why would you want to do that? So people have some people have the opinion that a device like Google Glass is invasive to privacy. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a camera that's always on and pointing at people in the room. It's not as if, you know, you go to a party, you don't walk around the room with a camera pointed at, yeah. but effectively that's what you've got on your face. It's got a mm -hmm. microphone, it's got a camera. And some people feel uncomfortable with that idea that, that people might be taking video of them at all times, taking photos and, you know, bringing them back home to look at later for whatever purpose. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is they'd rather have their privacy in public, which is I realize is a little bit of a weird thing to say, but I, I kind of get it. Yeah. They'd like to have that somewhat maintained. So this is a technological solution to a technological problem. I, uh, I think it's a societal problem personally, but anyway. Um, so basically what it does is the, the script, the original script, um, would look for the MAC addresses that are you know connecting and sending traffic over the local Wi-Fi networks, mm -hmm. trying to associate, trying to send traffic. Um, some people don't know this, but the, worst, the first three portions of a MAC address typically indicate the manufacturer. Right. So turns out Google Glass has a unique three portions of that, that MAC address. If you mm -hmm. see it on the network, this script would say, oh, you're using Google Glass. And it would send what's called a D-Auth frame, mm -hmm. and that would terminate the Wi-Fi connection. So what you're doing is you see it, you, know, you send the frame, you know, it tries again, you send another frame, tries again, tries, you're basically preventing them from accessing the Wi-Fi network. Right, right. Um, the script was um, rather derogatorily called glasshole.sh. Mm -hmm. um, like a black hole. Like Something like a black hole, <laughs> yes. Um, but the, the creator of it has now decided to productize this uh, and extended the functionality to other devices like uh, Google's Dropcam, which mm -hmm. is a small Wi-Fi camera that connects to the internet as well. Mm -hmm. uh, again, the, the general vein of it is to protect privacy. Now, right. there's, there's ups and downs to this idea. The first question is, um, is it right to even be doing this to Wi-Fi access points that you don't own. Oh, absolutely. So say you're out at a bar and you're within reach of 20 different access points and somebody is, you know, they've got their Google Glass on, you're afraid they're going to take pictures of you. You know, if you kick them off the personal Wi-Fi network that you own, maybe you're the bar owner and you want to prevent that, what prevents them from connecting to the other 19? Right, right. The other thing is um, these devices typically have onboard storage. So someone can take these pictures, not be able to upload them, but then just leave. Yeah, so and it's not really a good solution to the It's not a complete problem, solution, right? and I, I feel like it's going to be a cat and mouse game if someone tries to come up with a technological solution. I think what we're going to need is a social, a social solution where people mm -hmm. figure out what it is, what is and isn't appropriate behavior in these sorts of situations, mm -hmm. and then start behaving appropriately. I think at this point we've all decided that walking around a room with your camera out, videotaping everybody yeah. there without permission is, is rude. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to come up with that same standard for other devices. So perhaps the solution. Can you hand me the tape from over there, please? Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, wow. It's interactive. Yeah, I think We're perhaps the, fourth the solution wall here, here is a, to carry some of this around. To carry some and, tape yeah, and then just so slap just it on people's it, face? Just, put it on, on just the, put it on their Google Glass. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, the thing I think is interesting about this is it is about privacy and um, uh, with 
private citizens, you know, trying to monitor everybody. I can see how people would get offended. What I did hear about recently is uh, some police forces are now, yeah. um, mm -hmm. the police officers have cameras right on their whatever collar yeah. or something. Uh, yeah. And it's always recording what's going on. What they've observed from that is there is a lot less confrontation with whoever they're talking to. Right. So I think it was like a 40% decrease in the amount of, um, I don't know what they call it, but yeah. attitude right. from whoever they're talking Absolutely. to. Uh, so they were able to kind of de, you know, de-accelerate the the, right. uh, the the situation. Yeah, damper the situation yeah, a little bit more. So they, more do they quickly. have like a? It's very obvious that they have a camera on, and yeah. I guess people see that and they're like, oh, okay, and right. they behave themselves instead of, you know, going crazy. Uh, like a, they might. Sounds like a positive thing to me. There was a lot of controversy about starting to incorporate those as part of uh, you know what officers were, were doing, and I'm not sure they were so f in support of it either. But you know, perhaps this is uh, showing a good trend. Right, it has a good good side and bad sides probably for each mm -hmm. side. But uh, I thought right. it was an interesting statistic. All right, and uh, Jim, I guess uh, you were helping us with the uh, the originator of that idea. Yeah, the the guy who came up with it, his name was Julian Oliver. All right, good. Okay, Thanks. and we uh, absolutely want to give recognition to the people that come up with good ideas. Even though it sounds like it's not a really good technical solution, I think the notion of being able to control access to a Wi-Fi network and, or, you know, perhaps that's extendable to other kinds of things. If you're trying to protect your local network and you see other things coming on, maybe that's a... a uh, means to kick them off. Now, the, the official page does say there are some caveats, some things you won't be able to do. Right. Um, Bluetooth is another portion that they're, they're actually considering putting into the device itself yeah, cool. at some point in the future. Uh, I found it mostly interesting because using DAUTH frames is, is you're bordering on hacking at that point, right. which is, you know, it's kind of funny. Typically, you'd use DAUTH frames and then, you know, jump in with your own, your own malicious base station at that point and say, mm -hmm. hey, here I am. You should come connect to me. So this is, it's, you're pushing the boundaries between a hacker tool and, you know, a house appliance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of fascinating. Well, I think that, one, you know, there was a time in the past, and I haven't heard this for perhaps five years or so, but there was a time in the past where, where they were trying to make development of malicious software not legal. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was one of the big controversies, is how do you draw the line between a tool that can be used for good and bad and a tool that's just bad? And so uh, I think that's perhaps a good example where you have some, you know, opportunity. Uh, scanning tools were the ones that were right on the top. Mm -hmm. And uh, really the thing that made the distinction was the name. You know, if it had a bad name, bad sounding name, you know, nefarious look sounding name, you know, that felt like it was an illegal tool. But it was doing the exact same thing as the things that the, the security vendors were creating to be able to do, you know, commercial testing of your devices. So in any case. <laughs> Just another observation that came, sort of came out of this. Uh, speaking of observations, uh, let's go ahead and take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And uh, the first item we have is uh, scan sources and probes. Uh, we happen to be showing sources in the graph here, but it's uh, scan sources and probes on port 53413 UDP. That's a rather obscure port, not one that most of us would recognize, but it actually turns out that this is associated with a back door 
that's uh, located in a particular brand of home routers. This is uh, ones made by NetCore and marketed under the Netis brand name, N-E-T-I-S. The scanning activity in earnest kind of began right around uh, a disclosure that was made around August 25th. And uh, we'll go ahead and take a look at this in a moment here. But you can see actually right around August 27th, there are actually little, little bumps of uh, scanning activity on this particular port. But what we're seeing here is actually a significant growth in that activity. This was actually right around, I guess, September 1st. This was actually a growth in the number of sources that are doing the uh, scanning activity. So it went up to about 700 here, and then we see that sort of typical pattern of decay associated with botnet activity. And then they renewed it again. What we saw was were about 1,400 sources doing that scanning activity. It's resumed that, that, that decay activity. And so this, you know, 1,400 we saw just yesterday. September 8th. The significance here is that there is botnet activity scanning for this particular port and it's associated with a backdoor. And to give you a little better idea what the uh, characteristics of this backdoor are, as I've mentioned, it's in this Netis home router device. And it turns out that what uh, was discovered here by Trend Micro on their blog is a hard-coded password in the firmware. So in order to be able to change this, you're gonna have to get a patch or an update to the firmware itself and allows installation of malware as well as configuration or control of the router itself. So effectively, you can do just about anything you want with the device. Now, most of these devices apparently are, uh, it's a most popular device in China. Uh, there are fewer devices, and this is based on the, the trend micro observations. Uh, they see other ones and uh, uh, not so many. It, they did some scanning activity apparently in South Korea, Taiwan, Israel, and the United States. Uh, what we see in the scanning activity is relatively consistent with what they're saying, uh, most of them in China, uh, but we also saw some in Turkey, Brazil, Mexico, and some other countries uh, actually in Eastern Europe. So uh, it's relatively global in activity, not particularly significant in the United States. I'm not sure why uh, the United States is kind of left out of this in terms of uh, large volumes, but there are some around. So in any case, you want to pay attention to these routers. Uh, it's just yet another example of the uh, you know, internet of things that are contributing to our security issues as we go forward, and we're going to need to uh, continue to push the industry to improve uh, the security of these devices. Next item here is scan sources and probes on port 49152 TCP. This is uh, one that we've talked about actually uh, at least a couple of times now. This is associated with the IPMI vulnerability on Supermicro motherboards, where you could go in and actually extract a clear text password associated with that, uh, with that service. In this case, the, uh, again, the sources appear to be uh, internet of insecure things. And John, you've done a little bit of investigation of this. Anything you'd like to add? Well, I mean, what I can add is they're definitely scanning for that particular vulnerability mm -hmm. in the Supermicro IPMI. Uh, it's a particular get URL that you just got to fetch, and it gives you a whole password list. That's mm -hmm. uh, a pretty bad vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, so they're definitely scanning for that. But in terms of the sources doing it, there's a lot of embedded devices. I was anticipating that I would find Supermicro IPMI devices participating in this botnet that's doing the scanning. I wasn't able to find any that, yeah, that were. Uh, but I didn't do an exhaustive search either through okay. you know our scan source pool here. I just kind of did a little statistical analysis. Most of them are you know these uh, like I said before security camera DVRs, other network attached storage devices, these other types of embedded devices, home routers that have you know like a telnet prompt or whatever mm -hmm. that you can get into. Um, so that seems to be the pool set of uh, the types of scan sources that are involved here. 
Now, what someone's doing with the devices that are vulnerable is, you know, the super micro IPMI vulnerable devices, I don't know. Um, I haven't been able to see them participating in any kind of botnet yet. Okay. They might be, and I just, I don't see it. Right, right, okay. So uh, I guess in terms of uh, preventative or fixes associated with this, you know, I did a little bit of research, but not a, an, what I would describe as extensive or exhaustive research. I have not found any strong evidence of even acknowledgement of this vulnerability by Supermicro, uh, let alone patches associated with that. Uh, they do provide firmware patches for IPMI associated with their motherboards, uh, particularly associated with security vulnerabilities. Uh, there were some that were described back in December of 2013, but it is not clear that they actually have a patch for this. So uh, if you have a super micro device, you're going to want to go out and, and check on that. It's not something that's going to get updated by itself. You're going to have to do the firmware patches associated with it. And I guess the other thing, and uh, perhaps uh, uh, obvious to a lot of folks here, um, there is actually a best practices document for BMC. This is uh, baseboard management console capabilities. And basically what they say is you should be firewalling off these capabilities. They say firewall it off from the internet. My personal uh, recommendation is firewall it off from anybody that's not having to manage these devices directly. So actually, uh, you know, control it based on an operation center uh, uh, would be the ideal approach to it. And uh, so in any case, this is, uh, I think, a problem that's not going to go away anytime soon. These firmware updates generally aren't done until somebody really has to get pressed into it. And uh, similarly speaking, the same thing with the, uh, the Netis router item previously. It looks like in order for that problem to go away, you really have to do the firmware updates, and it's not likely a lot of those folks are going to do it anytime soon. So uh, these are just, uh, you know, some things that we're going to have to be paying attention to on the network and, uh, and uh, seeing what we can do to... to uh, uh, prevent the troubles that they're they're potentially creating. Next item here is uh, scan probes on port 5666 TCP. This is uh, a port that's associated with Nagios, which is a uh, basically a low-cost uh, system management platform to be able to uh, gather information about the uh, the state of systems and to uh, to help to manage those systems. Most of these probes are from a single address, and uh, it's actually a U.S.-based web advertising company, which I found to be a little bit of an anomaly here, perhaps a uh, compromise of some sort of their uh, of a piece of equipment they have exposed to the internet. Hopefully it's not one of these uh, Nagios management devices of their own, but uh, in any case, uh, we're seeing some of that probing activity. We we'll want to keep an eye on that. Again, anything that you have, whether it's IPMI or other you know, management platform, you want to keep those things firewalled off from the internet. Next item here is Bytes on source port 161 UDP. That's a simple network management protocol, one that's notoriously associated with distributed reflection denial service attacks. And that appears to be the case here that we're seeing uh, some denial service attack activity. Of course, you know, looking at the graph here, you can see that that's not new. Uh, you can see some sort of definite campaign activities that are going on here. And uh, some of the recent things sort of uh, set off some alarms associated with that. A lot of these attacks are generally targeting consumers. There are multiple attacks going on at a time. And uh, I would uh, generally associate that with the uh, commercialized denial service attack services, uh, often referred to as booters or stressor services. So uh, uh, there really needs to be uh, some work done to uh, try to uh, reduce that opportunity for commercialized denial service attacks. They're getting awful cheap and actually competitive. Looking at the 10 most probed ports, 
no real significant changes here. There's one uh, that, that's probably notable, port 25 TCP that showed up. Uh, it actually moved up uh, 15 notches in terms of the, uh, the rankings. It was previously, in the previous week, ranked 24, but uh, moved up to number 9 here. Just going through the list, uh, port 22 TCP, we've talked about many times. This is uh, basically brute force password attack attempts, as is uh, port 23 brute force password attack attempts to try to get remote access into devices, oftentimes, um, you know, devices that uh, we tend not to think of as computers, uh, Internet of Things. Next port is 1433, that's Microsoft SQL database, generally password guessing attacks associated with that as well, followed by port 445, port 80, port 53 UDP, DNS, port 3389, which is uh, remote desktop protocol, and then uh, followed by port 25 TCP, that's uh, simple mail transfer protocol, so that's basically what's used to send email, and then uh, port 8080 TCP. Oh, and uh, I guess I wanted to uh, show you a little bit about what it looks like, that profile associated with the port 25. What we see here is, uh, and that pie chart, by the way, is from uh, previous day activity. This was September 8th. What we're seeing here is actually the uh, a surge in scanning activity that took place. Most of that probing activity, that scanning activity, came from... Uh, from a source in China. There are a number of sources that do probing activity on port 25. They may be open, looking for open SMTP relays that would be able to facilitate spamming activities, and I'm sure there are plenty of those out there. Uh, they generally get shut down pretty fast because there are pretty good you know, uh, operations associated with basically rejecting sources of email that are invalid, but um, that continues to happen and they're able to get some through. and. Uh, so something you also want to be paying attention to on systems, make sure you don't have port 25 open uh, if it's not supposed to. Uh, next and last here, we have the most sources doing the probing. And on the top 10 list here, we have port 445 TCP followed by port 23 TCP, port 80, port 8080 TCP, and then uh, 2715, which generally is not associated with any uh, security issues. It's generally associated with gaming. Port 8081 with a, a proxy interface, as well as uh, port 3128, which is a squid proxy. So a lot of probing activity uh, tends to be looking for these proxies that potentially could be used to anonymize activity on the Internet. So that's our show for today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. Uh, you can not get notice of new episodes on uh, Twitter. Uh, we have a, a handle, it's at ThreatTrack. ThreatTrack video is available on att.com slash ThreatTrack, as well as on YouTube. Just uh, look for the ATT Tech channel. Uh, there's an audio-only version also available on iTunes. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jim, for joining online. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, John. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.